Welcome to Lamestream here on the 440 Sports Network. Happy Turkey Week Thanksgiving to everybody out there. Best week of the year. I think it's the best holiday of the year. I'm trying to convince my children that it's the better holiday than Christmas to no avail, but I'm still trying very hard, Steve. My name is Braden Gall. You can follow me on Twitter at Braden Gall. My name is Steve Cavendish. You can follow me on Twitter at Scavendish. Really fun show today. Really smart guest. Don Davenport going to join us, of course, host of 3HL with Brent Doherty, but also as a sideline reporter in the college football world. So we're going to talk to her a lot about what sideline reporting has been like, both pre and during the COVID situation. We'll talk a little bit about her TV life, doing WKRN's morning show, transitioning to radio, and as well as some issues that, that women have to deal with being uh, in sports. So really fun interview. Can't wait to talk to Don. You're going to hear a lot, uh, some really interesting stuff about Florida State and Clemson this weekend. So we'll get to that in just a second. However, we had some interesting things happen on the internet this weekend that I feel like, Steve, we on Lamestream have to comment on and, and, and issue a verdict on because, again, a, a, a media issue has, has arisen. I mean, it, 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 is, it is truly a, an issue of huge gravity. <laughs> this is an important week, Steve. You, you know, we're going to eat turkey and drink and watch football. It's an important week that we know Twitter rules. I didn't even know that. I didn't even know there was an etiquette. Is there an etiquette on tagging people into a conversation on Twitter? So I have no idea how this got started. No idea. All the all, all I saw was Paul Kaharski and Joe Rexrode going back and forth on Twitter about what they should or shouldn't do when it pertains to tagging athletes and coaches. So I immediately de delved into the discussion. Adam Vingan jumped into the conversation, host with me on the Gold Standard. I immediately texted you and said, Come on, dude. Check this out. Tell me what you think about this. What, what's the verdict here? And now we have to issue we have to issue a verdict on when you are being critical or positive about a player or a team or a coach. Do you tag that person in the tweet when you are talking about them? And I have a very clear answer, which is I I have never tagged anyone in any tweet unless it was sort of a congratulatory. Roman Yossi won the Norris Trophy. I might tag him in that. Or congratulations to the Preds organization on winning the Western Conference. Or, you know, something along those lines where it's a big sort of very clear, you know, it's not part of my job as the media. So you're asking. <laughs> so when you're ass kissing. Um, maybe. <laughs> but I mean, but yeah, I mean. Or just like genuinely wanted to congratulate somebody right, on right, doing right. something good. Like, so, 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 so you want to say, hey. Roman Yossi, congratulations to you personally. And, and so you tag him in there because you say, hey, I want you to see this. I, I, I guess. I never thought about it that way. The, <laughs> I, do, I, I have a pretty much no tag policy. Yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't care about tagging people. Uh, sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. I'm pretty kind of indiscriminate about it. I don't think it's, I don't think it's a problem if you don't tag somebody. This is, what, this is what Kaharski was saying was that it's like you're talking about somebody behind their back. I mean, Twitter's a big place. I mean, it is a, it is a giant. It's also very public. Yeah, it's also. And it's not really behind your back if everyone well, can see it. And, and Adam points this out. I mean, a lot of athletes are raving egomaniacs is the, maybe the wrong word to use, but <laughs> wrong term. But there's a lot of searching going on about, uh, about their performance on social media or about, you know. Here, here's all you need to know, and this will be timely. Hugh Freeze has slid up into my DMs before, and I've never tagged him. Wow. And it's because he name searches, and he's a notorious name searcher. And as Adam pointed out, Adam Vingan, all these people are name searching, all, all of them. So, it, again, if I see Jayon Brown make a, a, a mistake at, during a Titans game, and I type in, oh, Jayon Brown missed a coverage on that play, I'm not going to tag him in that. Right. 
I just don't know why I need to tag him in that. Can you imagine J.M. Brown coming in at halftime and checking his phone and being, right. and being like, like, motherfucker. Like, I, my, our Brayden job- Gall is on me again. <laughs> right. Like, really bad mistake by Ryan Tannehill. I'm not tagging Ryan Tannehill in that tweet. Like, I just, you don't do that. That's not part of the job. I don't know. I'm, I'm an anti-tagger. I'm, 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 with I'm, a, I'm a never tagger. I'm, a, I'm not a never tagger. But, but uh, you want to, uh, if you want to have a specific conversation with somebody, or if you want them to specifically know, then tag them. Uh, otherwise, it's like, I mean, there's a certain radio personality who I don't tag <laughs> because it's like saying the name Voldemort in a, in, in, in a, Harry, in a Harry Potter novel. God. You know, you're, all, you're doing is, all you're doing is asking for the minions of that person to, to incessantly kind of yeah. tweet at you. And then Twitter just devolves into the hellscape that it can be. I guess my point when I do tag people is that it's not really related to my job of covering that team, maybe is what it is. If, if I'm saying congratulations to somebody or whatever, it's maybe coming from me, the fan, or me, the Nashvillian, or me, just sort of the guy, the, the sports fan. When I'm trying to be, to be objective and analyze something, I, I've never felt the urge to tag anybody. And, and I, actually, I actually think that there's, a, there, there's kind of a nice thought behind Paul's policy there of tagging people into it is that he doesn't want anyone to think that he's not willing to stand behind what he says and, and which and, is which is pk standing on his right i mean his and, ethical high ground to a fault i mean I, <laughs> and i get that i absolutely understand that and, and if he writes a story about somebody and it's critical and, and he tags him in i mean I, I think that's i think that's an honorable thing to do sure i, I just don't think there's a problem with not doing it. okay all right there's our verdict not a problem with doing it, not a problem with not doing it. Do we have sound? So effects? it's a hung jury. Yeah, that's what we've got. Do we have sound effects yet? Because I have sound. I mean, no. <laughs> banging a gavel. Yeah, that's what we need. We need like the Law and Order kind of like transition. Dun dun. Dun, dun. All right, so let's get to Don Davenport. had had a very interesting couple of weeks covering sidelines in college football. We're going to talk to her a lot about this. She was headed to the stadium for the Florida State Clemson game, which of course got postponed due to COVID and very controversial. So found out in the parking lot. Found out in the parking lot. So she'll explain all of that. Obviously just the regular interactions of prepping for a game week are different. Everything about COVID has everything about sideline reporting has been changed by COVID. She's she's got a lot of interesting stories about the evolution of the sideline reporter both pre and during COVID. We got her to tell some uh, some good interview, bad interview stories. One of the things that's interesting about Dawn is She's kind of floated between a lot of different, uh, a lot of different mediums. Sideline reporting is such a very specific thing, and it's it's a straight reporting gig. I mean, there's, you're not there to you're not there to wax eloquently about you know someone's coaching style or the scheme that they're running or whatever else. I mean, you're there to say, hey, I saw this, you know, go. Whereas on a three hour show in the middle of the afternoon on radio. You know, she's there for her opinion and personality, and kind of the knowledge that, uh, about the sports that she loves and and that she's that she wants to talk about. They're very different things. You know, she's gone back and forth between news and sports. She did the she did the the four a.m. Uh, I think it's four to seven uh, show every morning on WKRN for a while as as one of their news readers, and she'll she'll talk about that. I mean, that's a that's a brutal gig. Uh, your 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 wake up time is two a.m. and if you've ever tried to do that on a regular basis, I had a I had a job at the Nashville Banner in the early nineties where my first call every morning, my, my first alarm every morning was at three o'clock, so I could be in by three forty five to start the sports page, and mm. your body just stops working. Yeah. At, 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 at a certain point, you're just not, it's it's not a natural sort of thing. But she did it for five years. She's 
I'm 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 stunned when anybody can last that long. I, I've done it twice for five years total, but it was separated by like a decade. I, my first job out of college was a morning show producing. So I didn't have to be on air. I didn't have to be coherent necessarily. Now there's a lot of moving parts to, to being a producer on a radio show. But that I, I do remember when, when I left you know, Rivals.com, I, I spent the immediate first month of not working that job uh, drinking beer and playing pool. I was like 25 years old <laughs> until like one in the morning. So I was like, I'm going to try to get back to my normal college life. I, I will say this, though. The second time I did it, which was, of course, locally for the game when I started in September of 2016, I do. Re- Here's what I recommend: If you're gonna do a morning radio show or television show, I recommend having a brand new baby when you start it. Because <laughs> <laughs> we started, Jason Fitz and I started that morning show September of 2016. My daughter was born the first month of October of 2016, and so it was very easy for me to get up at four in the morning <laughs> because I was almost already up anyway, trying to feed the baby. So I recommend having a baby if you're gonna try it. And I'm not going to lie, after three years, I definitely enjoyed staying up till midnight. I'm a night owl person, so I, I, I human bodies are not designed to be up at 2, 3, 4 in the morning. I, I, could, I, I could never go back to that schedule. Uh, no. it just, it's, just, it's just inhuman. So a little bit of the, her transition from TV as well. Lots of interesting stories there as to why she wanted to do that from TV to radio. Also, obviously, a female in a male-driven uh, audiences and how much... You know, you kind of have to deal with what are her Twitter policies. We'll get into some of that with her uh, as well. So I can't have her on here without talking about some of that as well. So without further ado, Steve, let's hear from Don Davenport, host of 3HL and sideline reporter for ESPN. This was our conversation. Don, first of all, thank you for giving us uh, a few minutes of your time today on Lamestream. We've got a lot of stuff to get to with you, but number one, Take everybody through what your weekend was like last weekend. <laughs> oh, it was definitely very different. First off, good to be with you guys. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, I was actually scheduled to work the Clemson at FSU game, to work the sidelines for, for that game. So normal week, and, and just to give you some background on COVID testing, you know, it's it's different across all the conferences. And, and I've been in the SEC pretty much all year. A couple of times have bounced out of SEC play. But, you know, SEC is... Sunday, Tuesday, Thursday, I think is is their schedule. Well, for ACC, for Clemson, it, the only thing you have to do is you have to do Friday. Other than that, it's up to each individual school. So they kind of differ. For FSU, they always do Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Clemson normally does Sunday, Wednesday, Friday. This week, they had done Monday, Wednesday, Friday because they were coming off a bye. So I'm giving you that background so you know that Friday, there is a COVID test that's administered for these schools. So Wednesday test, everything looks okay. Not a big deal. I'm not expecting anything on Saturday. Saturday, games at noon in Tallahassee. I'm in my car pulling into the stadium at like 8.30, 8.45. I like to get there super early. I usually get there like three hours prior to kick. And I get a call from my producer that the game has been postponed. That is when I found out that the game was postponed <laughs> because of, uh, if you read the ACC press release, the medical people involved could not come to the conclusion that it was safe for both of the teams to play. So I get to the stadium. There's FSU players walking around on the field. They found out while they were eating breakfast. I'm talking to Clemson people. They were eating breakfast and they found out they were still at the hotel. So they never actually made it to the stadium. But it was the whole thing was just bizarre. 
It really was. And, and here's the deal. Let me say this about it because, so first of all, I mentioned that Friday test that goes back to that. So Friday test means they don't get their results back. Clemson didn't get their results back until Friday night when they have already traveled. So they are at the hotel. Their team has already traveled. That's when they get their COVID test back. So those results are back Friday night, Saturday morning, all of the medical experts, both teams, the, the conference, they meet just to make sure everybody's on the same page. All the precautions have been taken, all of that. That's where the issue was. So, so this was done basically 6 a.m., you know, 6.30 Saturday morning, the decision was made. And, and I mean, you can say on both sides, you see why Clemson's angry? They just traveled. They hadn't played a game, you know, in over a week. They're coming off a bye. Trevor Lawrence was going to play his first game in 28 days. Now you're going to add another week to him not actually playing a game in the middle of a season when you're on a national title. So, so from all of that, I get it. And, and I chatted with uh, FSU head coach, Mike Norvell, his players were surprised. They were like, man, we were really looking forward to playing, you know, when I talked to them on the field. So I think coaches and players, everybody was really ready to play. This obviously was a decision that was made over all of their heads. So I know the the talk is, oh, FSU backed out of it. Well, and, and maybe that's the case from the administration side of it. But I will say this about FSU. They've been very careful. They haven't had a positive COVID test since Mike Norvell tested positive back in, in September. So they had two defensive linemen that opted out because they were worried. And then they saw how careful FSU was and, and the precautions and the protocols that they went through. And they opted back in because they felt that safe. So that being said, there's some background for FSU as far as how careful they've been in this entire thing. But it wasn't on the coach or the players. This was, this was a higher up decision. But that, it definitely, I can say it's a career first for me, finding out <laughs> as I pull into the stadium that the game's not going to happen, right? <laughs> Never so, had that happen before. I think the best way to help people get their heads around this is for you to describe a week, like what your average week is like, Monday morning through the weekend. How do you set up? What, where are you preparing? And, and where are you, where do you have to have kind of multiple focuses? Yeah, so obviously I I also do, you know, afternoon drive radio show 3HL. So so that kind of takes away to uh, some of my time during the week, but I'll just give you the heading into a typical Saturday on the sidelines and what I do. Now now for the most part for the last 3 years I have been in SEC country, which is great because at that point you work the same teams year over year, you really know them, you know the players, you you've gotten to know them over the years from their freshman year up to their senior year. So you really know everything about them and their game at that point when you stay in the same conference but like this weekend I hadn't seen the last time I saw FSU get this Jimbo was still the coach it was their season opener I think it was 2014 their season opener when Jimbo was still there and you might remember this it was the yellow brick road kind of thing where he had painted or put the paper down of the yellow brick road from the locker room to the <laughs> to the practice facility he was trying to get his team to buy in honestly it was kind of the beginning of the end of his error there that's the last time i was i was at in tallahassee worked at fsu game for clemson it was against south carolina i think it was 2016 but it it ended up being steve spurrier's last clemson 
South Carolina game. And you see how we are, where we are now with that, obviously. <laughs> well, Muschamp is now gone at South Carolina. We've gone through two coaches there. So, um, so it's been a while. So I really had to dig in to the deep kind of stuff on that team, not just, hey, you watch Clemson every week and you know what's going on because they're a top team in the country, right? So I really had to dig in. So per uh, just an example, usually find out Sunday where you're going and what team you're covering, who your crew is, if it's different than normal. This year has has been such a different year. So I'll, I'll explain what, what we do this year because it's Zoom instead of in-person meetings, which is is very bizarre. So, you know, find out who you're covering Sunday, do a little research. Who did they just play? How did that go? You know, I have a, a program where I can go pull up their games, you know, and watch, I, get, I, I say watch film. It's not, it's not a coach's look, right? It's, but it's at least you can watch the game uh, or pass games. So do that with both of the teams. Kind of try to do that on Sunday. It depends on if the Titans are playing and, and what time and what's going on. But Sunday, Monday is, is that. Then on Monday, it's uh, usually have a call with your producer, early production call either Monday or Tuesday with your producer, with your play-by-play analyst, your, your play-by-play guy and your analyst. Kind of come up with early storylines. Like, hey, it's, okay, what do we want to pull here? Let's pull, like, these players have played this long in that rivalry, you know, so we want this video, we want this, these graphics, you know, that kind of thing. Just early storylines. Do a lot of reading, whatever I can. Beat writers are, are the best. <laughs> and so I read a lot of articles from them kind of Monday, Tuesday, just to catch up. And then we have coaches Zoom calls now on Wednesdays. You get head coach, offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator. So usually the away team is on Wednesday. Usually the home team is more on Friday. Now it's been kind of different this year, but but you get the head coach and both coordinators. Also during the week, I usually set up depending, uh, like for Clemson, Trevor Lawrence joined us on Zoom. So we were able to spend like 25, 30 minutes with him. There was another player that I wanted to jump in with just from a storyline standpoint because you know he was playing really well for them. And so I wanted to talk to him. He wasn't available on a Zoom. So I just set up with the SID a phone call, spent a, you know 10 minutes talking to him from a storyline standpoint just to, to talk about where he was in in his career and him personally kind of thing. So, you know, throughout the week, I'm constantly talking to sports information directors and, and really digging into, okay, hey, where is this team mentally right now? Who are the leaders? Who was the, you know, weight room guru in the off season? Who is this? So I think people forget because so much of a, a sideline reporter's job is, hey, this is what's going on in front of you. You are the eyes and ears down there because especially now with our announcers calling games from home to be safe with COVID, I'm the only one there. So I'm the only one that can see what's going on. So eyes and ears, like absolutely the most part, important part of my job. But I will say that people forget all the prep work you need to do because I need to know if somebody goes down with an injury and it happens to be a similar in- injury to what they had two years ago, I need to know that. And the only way I'm going to know that is if I do my thorough research on the team, the players, and what they're dealing with. So there's a lot of in-week prep stuff. Well, and then let's get to the game because you just mentioned something really fascinating, which is, you know, when the play-by-play and color people are not in the building, you know, they have to do everything off a monitor, which means they don't get get the full scope of sort of the entirety of the field and what's going on. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago with uh, Tony Husband, who calls Nashville SC games. Take people through what your job is while they're on the air calling plays. Kind of take people through what a normal game day looks like in the middle of the broadcast when you're not actually on the air. And then 
how has that changed? How is that different through a pandemic? Because now you maybe have to feed them more information because you are one of the only people on site. Yeah, so in a normal year, they're up in the booth. They can they can watch warm ups. They watch who walks out. They they can watch. They can see everything from up there. Now they might have the big view on their monitor, but they can't see the small things. They can't see. Hey, look! I just saw you know number forty seven who we've been watching. We didn't know if he was going to play. I'm up close to him. I'm watching him. I just heard him talk to his trainer and say, "Hey, my ankle's really bothering me." I just heard this. I saw him walk out of the locker room limping. You know, this is something we have to keep an eye on throughout the game. Here's what I saw. So it it's stuff like that that. Honestly, it's important any game, but even more so now when they're not there to be able to see for themselves. There's also small things. I mean, the cameras cannot, and it depends on what kind of show you're on. I mean, the the Kirk Herbstreit, you know, big time show has 20, 25 cameras in their show. So they're going to get pretty much almost everything that's going on on those sidelines and, and around that game. Not the case for most of the games that I work. Um, and so coaches on the sideline, comments that are said, body language, you know, hey, I just saw the quarterback come off and, and chunk his helmet and he's really upset at this receiver. And it's not necessarily that I'm going to do a report on all of that, but it's making sure that my announcers know what's going on and kind of the background. So if something happens on that field that has to do with that, or maybe, you know, there's a wide open receiver and he doesn't hit him that time. Well, Hey, here's the background. You know, there, there's some issues between those two right now. Those are things that they're, and honestly, even in a normal year, sometimes they're not going to see. Now, let me say this without crowds, I can hear everything on those sidelines. <laughs> and that is that's kind of cool because a, a lot of times, you know, I'm I'm reading lips or I'm just kind of hearing in passing, but with no crowd noise, I can hear a lot more about adjustments and what's going on in game than I normally can. So so that's just kind of a snapshot into how important I think that role is down there, especially this year. Do you have a personal or is there a industry line on what you can and can't then repeat? If you hear a coach just like dog cussing a player about how he's doing X, Y, and Z wrong or whatever, like wh where's your personal sort of ethical line on what you should report and, and what you think is maybe privileged and what you think the audience really needs to know? Yeah, I think it's I think it's a personal decision. Honestly, there uh, we actually had a reporter a long time ago when I first started with ESPN that um, reported a head coach's extremely animated, should I say it that way, uh, interaction with one of his assistant coaches, one of his coordinators, and there was an uproar about it. And, and here's the problem. If you're reporting stuff that coaches get bothered by and they're, they're not happy about, guess what? Our access is going to start to get limited. You're not going to be allowed to stand that close to the sideline eventually. So I think you have to be careful from that standpoint. And, and my go-to is always this, is what I'm reporting and how I'm reporting it, adding to the viewer's experience and knowledge of this game and this broadcast is it important in the grand scheme of the competitive who's going to win this game what's going on decisions made all of that is is it important from that standpoint because if it's not and it's just juicy so and so just ripped somebody then it's not a report it's not important right if it has to be in my mind it has to be something that adds to 
the viewer's knowledge of what's going on in this game. And it also has to be something that uh, sometimes you have to soften things. Yes. You know, sometimes you kind of say, Hey, really animated coach instead of, Hey, a coach just, you know, reamed his player up and down. But that's my whole take um, is that it has to add to the value of the game and why you are there. Now, sometimes you'll hear things and I've done this. I've had this happen before. I'll hear things in the first half that maybe, you know, isn't important then, but turns into an important piece of information later in the second half. So that happens often too. And then the other rule is from a, a competitive standpoint, you, you don't ever want to report anything that if so-and-so assistant coaches, you know, brother is sitting at home and, and hears that report can text and, and say, oh, hey, here you go. This is, this is what they're doing, or this is what their coach just said on this. It's just stuff like that. I just, I think it's a judgment call and, and you just have to make sure that you're not putting either a player or a coach in a, in a bad position by what you do or don't report. And that's all. And that's how you grow, earn trust too with these staffs and these coaches and, and you earn the trust to be able to stand on that sideline and, and hear it. One of the most visible things for a sideline reporter is that sort of end of half, beginning of second half, sort of quick coach interview. Sometimes they're good. Sometimes they're just complete train wrecks. A lot of times it depends, <laughs> depends on the disposition of the coach. Yeah. What do you try to get out of those? And do you have to strategize kind of like per coach? Like I know this coach is, always a grump or this coach is sometimes gives me stuff or not, or, or how do you, how do you approach that? Because you've got like what, 30 seconds, 45 seconds yeah. to, to get something and, and have it be meaningful. Yeah. So, and once you get to know coach, you guys know this just from interviewing coaches and players and in, in your entire career, but you get to know personalities, you get to know how you have to ask questions in order to get stuff like perfect example head coach Derek Mason with Vanderbilt. I know that I have to ask him at halftime something specific, or I'm going to get a generic response that doesn't give the audience anything. I know that I have to narrow in on something specific when it comes to him. Sometimes, you know, there are coaches that it doesn't matter what you ask. They're going to say exactly what they want to say. Coach Saban, whatever you ask him, he's going to hit exactly what he wants to hit at that point in time. And, and that's fine, but you get to know different coaches and you get to know how you have to ask questions in order to actually get an answer that you think people want to know about. So that's what I do. I sit there, I watch a first half of football and I think if I'm sitting at home in my living room, what do I want to know from this coach about that half? If it's, whatever, South Carolina just put up 300 yards rushing. It's been a while, right? Uh, 300 yards <laughs> rushing <laughs> in that first half. What do you do? You know, what in the world do you have to change to stop that? Like, that's what I want to know. How do you stop that guy? How do you contain him? Or, hey, a backup quarterback came in because there was an injury. I want to know coach's take on how he played. I think from that standpoint, uh, as far as asking questions, you know coaches, you know their personality, you know how to kind of get maybe the best out of each one. And sometimes you, I can sit on a sideline and know this is going to be a disaster because that coach is not happy right now. You know <laughs> it's coming. Like you can just see it coming. That totally happens. Best worst interviews. Who, who's, um, who's your favorite? Uh, Okay. Well, I don't know about best. I, you know what? Will Muschamp always has always answered my specific questions. So 
<laughs> no more of him right now, but RIP. <laughs> I know he was always great at halftime. I think Lane Kiffin obviously is is Lane Kiffin. He's always great. Let, let me tell you a story about my worst this year, actually. Uh, Mike Leach. <laughs> love him. Absolutely love him. And I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. And this is a weird year, right? This is a COVID year. The halftime interview is so odd. You know, I'm, I have to stand at least 10 feet away. They have to put headphones on now so they can actually hear me through those headphones. Like and they stand in front of a stand. My, it's just, it's a lot, right? It's, it's very different. So I ended up, what game was this? Mississippi State, who were they? I think they were playing Vanderbilt. Yeah, and I had I had worked a prior, I worked Mississippi State, Texas A&M as well, but I didn't get him on camera coming off because they were trailing at that point. So this was the first time because they've been trailing at half. I think week one, maybe they were ahead at half over LSU, but CBS chose to do Ed O at halftime live going on. I mean, why wouldn't you, right? It's Ed O. I get it. So this was the first time that Coach Leach had to do a walk-off halftime interview. So he comes up and he's like, what, what is this? What's going on? You know, he's like not happy that this is like, <laughs> that he can't walk and talk, which I'm like, I get it. And he's like, let's just walk and talk. I'm like, Coach COVID, can't do it. We can't. So finally he stands by the mic and I'm like, the headphones are right there. Just put them on because I can't touch any of this. We're trying to keep everybody safe, right? We don't want germs spread around. So I'm like, headphones are right there. He doesn't put them on. You know, he's like, just go. Ask me. I'm like, okay. So I'm like trying to yell at him so he can hear me, but I have to be 10 feet away. So of course he can't hear my question. And he's like, I can't hear you. I'm like, I know because there's headphones in front of you that you have to put on so that you can hear me coach. <laughs> but, uh, but like I said, that bl bless his heart because he had not done it before. It is completely different. And the last thing coaches want to do a lot of times walking off at half is deal with that. Right. I get it. I totally get it. But, but I'll put that down as one of my worst. Uh, <laughs> and, and also let me say this, like, I love coach Leach. He's anytime I chat with him, like he is great. Talks to me. I mean, sometimes we'll go off on a tangent, whatever, like he's great. But in that moment, he was just did not want to deal with that entire halftime setup. And I get it. But that was definitely, that definitely takes over, <laughs> takes over as the worst. Most folks know you on the sideline, people listening to you on 3HL, but a lot of people got to know you at KRN doing sports. What was local TV like? And do you, do you have a kind of comparison between doing local TV and doing local radio? Well, I will say this. So local TV, you guys know it's, hey, here's your three minutes or two minute segment during the week and try and pile it all in. And, and here you go. Um, you know, the only kind of long form shows we had from a sports standpoint were the Sunday night shows, which were great because that gave you about at least 20 minutes of content to where you could really dive into things. But for the most part in local TV, you just don't get the time that, of course, I think sports in our city deserves. <laughs> so you're, you're limited in really what you could do from a project standpoint, from a, a, an informational standpoint, from a feature story, really diving in deep to things, you're kind of limited. So from that aspect, I, I love the long form ability radio gives you. I love the fact that we have three hours a day where we can dive into deep 
things where you can give an opinion, you know, local TV, it's, it's, I never really, one, had the time in local sports to give an opinion. And then two, in certain things, you're just delivering the information. You're not there necessarily to give a strong opinion. So that's been a transition for me into radio is, is feeling comfortable enough in giving an opinion. Um, and I think, you know, honestly, week by week, month by month, I kind of get more comfortable in giving an opinion, but I love the fact that you kind of get one-on-one interaction with listeners in your town, you know, Twitter kind of helps that for good or for bad. And then I love that you have, you know, three hours to actually dive into things and give an opinion and, and go deep on teams and, and issues or struggles or what they're doing well. That's, that's kind of the big plus of, of jumping from TV to radio. I've been a radio person my entire career. And every time I tried to do any, even just as a guest on TV stuff, I always found it just incredibly difficult to condense all the things I wanted to say into like that 45 seconds or that one minute or whatever. So it sounds like you had a little bit of a preconceived notion that that was sort of part of the the transition. Can you kind of take people through what your thought process was when you decide to go from television to radio? Uh, Obviously, it sounds like some of that space, that real estate that you wanted was a part of that. But can you, what other aspects of the thought process were there when you made that transition? Yeah, that was a big part of it. Um, and for those that don't know, I had done local sports at WKRN uh, and then jumped over and anchored the morning show for news for five years. And so I went from that morning show into sports talk radio. So for me, that decision was one, getting back into sports full time. Cause I'd still, I still did ESPN games while I was anchoring the morning show. So I basically just kind of worked both during that time. But so, so for me, the big part was jumping back into just sports and getting out of news and, and getting back into kind of, you know, what I love and what I've always loved. So that was one. And then two, it was, it was the, the ability to, to talk more about the sports that I love, to really dig in, to be able to have an opinion too, especially from a news standpoint, when you're sitting on a news desk for three hours a morning, you don't have an opinion. Like you do not give an opinion. <laughs> there there might be some, some news personalities out there nowadays that are different, but I never gave a strong opinion on that show either way. I have, I was there to provide the information for people. And then that way people could, you know, make their own minds up about things. So for me, it was, it was the ability to jump into something where I could give an opinion, where I felt like my, my knowledge was, was heavy, where, you know, I had kind of the, the longer form where all of my prep work and my research and all of that, I could actually use it, you know? So, and then I had jumped on 3HL and, and the midday show. I mean, a couple of them here and there when I would work games or Titan stuff, you know, I worked the sidelines for the ABC preseason broadcast. So I would always jump on their radio shows and do segments. And I just always loved kind of the freedom that you had with radio. So, so that played the, all of that played into the decision. Well, and then the fact like who wants to get up at two o'clock in the morning. That that was, that was my (laughs) slightly different mornings, right? (laughs) There's a lifestyle choice. So I, I wrote about uh, this for the scene, I don't know, five, six years ago about early morning TV. And I spent the morning with the with the Fox folks. And the thing that struck me was the lifestyle you have to have for that. I mean, what time, you're going to bed yeah. at like eight o'clock. Uh, I, I mean, if you're OK with five 
hours sleep. Yeah. Honestly, if you're okay with five or six hours sleep, then you can go to bed at 8 p.m. Uh, this girl, not okay with five <laughs> or six hours sleep. Like I need, I need my seven, eight, nine kind of, that's, that's where, that's so where we are on sleep. So you had to train your, you had to train, you have to train your body at this point to go to bed at 6 p.m. Yep. In order to, in order to be able to wake up, you're there at two, two thirty. You're, you're trying to absorb things at an ungodly hour. How much caffeine are you kind of piling in at this point? <laughs> yeah, that's uh, coffee is your best friend. You know, what's funny. I was not a huge coffee drinker until I started on that morning show. And then that totally flipped me. And now I'm, I'm still on the coffee train, but, but yeah, I did not drink coffee until I started that morning show. And then you almost have to, I mean, there were times where I would just feel like I would just sit there and, and feel like the dumbest person alive because you're so tired that you feel like your brain just will not work. I mean, there are parents out there of babies, I'm sure that feel this pain, right? They're like, oh yeah, that's, that's called having a baby too. Right. <laughs> but, um, but I've felt that especially towards the end, because here's the other thing when you're a sports fan and you want to watch sports, guess when sports happen at night. Yeah. So there was your other battle. I would, I would sacrifice sleep. And I worked that morning show when the Preds were on their, I mean, legit runs, right? And I would go to Preds games all the time. So, you know, it would be like a two hour sleep instead of normal. And here's the other thing. I was also working for ESPN. So imagine Monday through Friday, sometimes I would have Fridays off to travel for a game, but Monday through Friday working that morning schedule. And then I'd get off the set Friday morning. I'd immediately hop on a plane, get to wherever I was going for coaches meetings, all of that. We'd have production meetings usually Friday night, 8 p.m., 7 or 8 p.m. So that's a really long day. And then Saturday, if I end up working a night game on Saturday, your schedule's completely flipped. And then you get up early Sunday, fly home super early to try and get back. And you're trying to get back on that morning show schedule. So, so it was tough, man. I can't believe Neil Orne has done it for 20 years. It's, it's insane how he has, has been able to do it. Cause that's the thing I that, love sleep. <laughs> that's the thing that struck me was that there are, there are two classes of people. There are people that are doing this. And then there are people who that they're, they're creatures of that time period. And, yeah. and other people can kind of come in and out of those shows but there's this subset of people who can work a 4 a.m. show and be perfectly fine with it and set up their life and 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 be be at it it's absolutely normal for them and then for everybody else around them they're just they're just dying <laughs> i don't know like who, what's in their blood it's a, it's a different breed i really well, think it's a different breed well and i like i'm naturally caffeinated in general and i've done two different morning show chunks of my career and you know, radio, it's one thing you, you can stay up late and watch a Preds game that you need to cover the next morning. And you can come in in a pair of basketball shorts and a t-shirt and just be oh, like, yeah. and, have your, yeah, yeah. and have your, have your, yeah, my hair's always in a bun. Um, <laughs> but put your, your, your heads in your hands during the, you know, while the other guy's talking and like you can, there's in radio, it's so much easier in television. You have, not only do you have to be mentally prepared, but like physically you have to look the part at all times in yeah. TV. So again, that's a huge chunk of your morning schedule that like again even as a radio guy who's done it twice in his career who by the way I am not one of the people that has it in his blood I like to be up late I like to watch stuff I'm a, I'm a night owl but yeah. I could make do because I could just show up and look completely disheveled because nobody saw me 
Yes. And that was a big part of it. And, you know, you do when you're in local TV, you do your own makeup, you do your own hair, you're on your own there. I mean, there were quite a few mornings where my hair would be in a low ponytail that morning because it was just one of those mornings, you know, you just (laughs) didn't have time. So I I will say this. So our show started at 4 a.m. And and that was the part that made it brutal because your wake up time is two when you're talking about having to do hair and makeup and, and catch up on whatever happened overnight news wise, or, you know, after 6 PM when you went to bed. So that was why if it was just even an hour later of a start, it just, it makes it so much better. So that was part of it. And, and let me say this too, that five years was even though that schedule is brutal, it was some of my absolute favorite career moments ever because it was more of a free show because it's a morning show. You can kind of show a little personality and chat and you get to know the viewers because you're a part of their routine every morning and sit next to Neil Orne and Justin Bruce was our meteorologist for a, a majority of my time there. I mean, it, you kind of become a family. You better like who you work with if you're getting up at 2.30 in the morning to work with them, right? And they always made it so much fun. So I'll say, even though I didn't get any sleep and I constantly had big black circles under my eyes for that entire five years, uh, I enjoyed just the camaraderie and how much fun we had on that show for, for those five years. So that that made it worth it. That made it hard to leave, honestly, but, uh, but sleep won out. <laughs> So uh, uh, there's a whole other topic here that I'd love to discuss with you, Don. since of course you are a woman and you've worked in media and in sports for, for your entire career. And I'm interested first, before we get into sort of some of the details, because I'd love to know your Twitter policy. I'd love to, you know, there's certain things that I'd like to know about how you handle them. But number one, in sort of like a broad picture, can you try to explain maybe the difference between news and sports and how you're treated in those two different avenues? There's a different attitude towards you as a woman? Can you try to explain maybe the broad strokes of how different it is to work in news versus sports? Uh, This answer might surprise you. Now, granted, I worked a morning show, so our audience was predominantly female. Obviously, that's different when you you kind of cross over to sports. So kind of have had both both sides of it. I will say this, sometimes women are awful to other women. Awful. I mean, so mean. There were times on that morning show because I came in and took over for somebody that had been there for a while. It was Julie Kranig who had had a couple of babies while she was on that show. So she was loved, you know, and she decided to step away. Um, And so I stepped into her role and there were a lot of people that weren't happy about it. And I will tell you this, there were times where I was like, oh my gosh, give me angry male. You're a woman. You don't know anything (laughs) about sports fan, like any day of the week, opposed to mean woman that is so mad that I just ruined her mornings. I'm like, please, any day of the week, I would take, you're a girl. You don't know what you're talking about over, over the these messages and emails and tweets and all of that that I'm getting so yeah I mean if you're in a public you know you're in a a position where the public is judging you watching you you're not not everybody's gonna like you not everybody's gonna hate you you're gonna get both and you just have to kind of let it roll off your shoulders you know um and so I did I learned that super early I remember my first job out of college in Wilmington North Carolina and by the way I was terrible terrible, but I ended up somehow getting that job. And uh, I did local sports. And I remember an older gentleman calling the station after I got off the air and just ripping me like, 
you don't know what you're talking about. Girls don't belong in sports. I can't believe they hired you. You're terrible. And by the way, at this point, I did nothing on that show to, to deserve that. You know, if I had made some big mistake, totally get it. If there was nothing in that show where I deserved that. So I remember hanging up and bawling my eyes out. Oh my gosh, this is terrible. They're so mean, blah, blah, blah. And I had the main anchor at that time came over and said, hey, look, let me, let me give you a little lesson here. This is gonna happen. You can't make everybody happy. There's gonna be people out there that hate you, that don't know you, don't take it personal because they don't know you. They just want to hate you and it's gonna happen and you're gonna have to suck it up and basically be a big girl and deal with it for the rest of your career because it is what it is. And I remember that and thinking, oh, okay, dry the tears, move on, <laughs> just brush it off. So that's kind of my take on it. And like I said, sometimes, I mean, we're all human. Sometimes it'll get to you, but you, you, you have to remember that you're not gonna please everybody it is what it is. What about on social media? Because reporters, journalists, everybody has to be, you have to have a presence online, whether it's Facebook or Twitter. And I think, you know, a lot of journalists sort of sort of gravitate towards Twitter anyway. Do you have a, a the reaction particularly for women and particularly for women in sideline positions can be brutal. Have you experienced any of that? And, and how do you respond to just kind of a cavalcade of a set of fans coming after you? Yeah, I, I ha I've been really fortunate for the most part. I haven't had a ton of, you know, experiences would just attack you. Uh, if, if you, if you know me, you know, sometimes I tend to run red and uh, I mean, you know, Corey Curtis, when I used to work at WKRN used to uh, nickname me the angry Chihuahua. So basically, you know, oh, sweet and wonderful until, you know, you just, you put your hand like too close to her mouth and then watch out, you know, it's angry Chihuahua <laughs> coming at you. So I have, uh, I have had to learn that I can respond to people, but I need to step back and at least wait for a little bit to actually fire off a response. So that's been kind of my policy is in, in a lot of times, like I'll check Twitter during games because sometimes, you know, somebody that's watching a broadcast at home can notice something and be curious about something and ask you that you never even saw or that your announcers never even saw. I, I'll bring up an example. I worked at the Liberty Bowl. Kevin Sumlin was still at Texas A&M. Who were they playing? I forget who they were playing at this Point. Anyway, so they were playing, Texas A&M was playing in the Liberty Bowl. There was an assistant that threw a punch. It was, it ended up not being an assistant. It was um, like a GA or something, but threw a punch at the end of a play. It was on the very edge of the screen that a couple of viewers caught and, and had like replayed it and or retweeted it and, and clipped the video. I never saw it. Our announcers never saw it because nobody in the, the truck, like pr producer, nobody saw it. Well, I had jumped on Twitter and saw a bunch of tweets asking about it and what happened. So I was able to ask Coach Sumlin about it as he was coming back out from the half. So from that standpoint, there's where social media can really help you. You know, that's a point where I, I never saw that actually happen on the sideline. You know, you can't see everything. So, so I still do check it, but I think you just have to, my policy is wait a little bit before you respond. And, and sometimes it's worth a response and sometimes it's not, you know? So it's interesting. You, you, you got that lesson early in your career, because I do think that no, like you said, no matter what medium you're in, 
you're going to have to have some level of thick skin that just deals with a bunch of BS from a bunch of, you know, eggs on Twitter or whatever. And that's just sort of baked into the job to some degree. You you know, I I have personal lines like where people will come after my like wife or children. And I'm like, no, 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 that's you've gone too far. But I've never had to deal with sort of the vulgarity and some of the stuff that goes to another level. And I almost find it interesting that, you know, you were given that lesson earlier in your career. Through these last couple of years, have you thought about like, hey, maybe there is, there's a, is there a line where I need to, because again, you don't mind pushing back, which I appreciate about you. I don't know if we've, we should just be in that place anymore where we just say, no, 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 it's okay. You just have to deal with a bunch of bullshit because you're in the media. And I think some of that's okay. But I do think there's lines where people go above and beyond that, that we need to then stand up and say, especially women have to stand up and say, no, that, that's, that's not appropriate behavior. That is, that is wrong and it needs to be called out. I don't know how you solve it. And I'm not even sure what question I'm asking here of you. I just yeah. like, I'm not like, what is the right question that we should be asking about our, our interaction with women in, in sports media positions? Yeah, I think, well, and it's interesting because you'll see, I think you see much more often now women in sports media uh, quote tweet a, uh, you know, a derogatory tweet and then basically put it out there and just let that person absolutely get attacked um, by by the the rest of the masses for, for what they're doing. So I think there's different ways to handle it. Now, I will say this, I don't let everything roll off my back. Absolutely not. If there's if there's something that I feel crosses the line. Now I've been I've been fortunate enough to where I don't think I say enough uh, or have a, a controversial opinion enough to where people specifically come at me and then come at my family and my, my husband or my baby. You know, I don't think I'm I'm that kind of a personality where I get that. So that from that standpoint, it's hard for me to speak to you know what you like a Sarah Spain. She's that kind of personality where people just attack her and come at her. I'm not, I, I don't, I'm not that personality. So I don't have to deal with that. I don't think to the extent maybe she does, but there are certain tweets when there, when you talk about a line, you know, it's interesting because it, it kind of goes back to what you were talking about. How do you decide what you do and don't report on the sideline? It's just, it's a personal feel, right? Um, and so that's what it is. It's a personal feel. If there is a, I know we keep going back to Twitter, but that's where I get most of my, or any of my hate is usually on Twitter. Uh, for the most part, I don't get it. You know, to, email is a lot more effort, I guess, <laughs> to actually send something <laughs> to an email. You know, Twitter is super easy. Just tweet, fire away. So uh, from a line standpoint, I think once you're over the line from a standpoint of, you know, like physical or just completely inappropriate from that standpoint, I'll fire back. I'll say something like that's, that's not okay, you know, or you know, it's, it's the, the guy who has a picture with his daughter and his profile picture, you know, and, and, and the response there clearly is please, you know, I, I really hope for your daughter's sake that you're not this kind of person. So I think, I think you pick and choose where you decide to, to respond. Um, and here's the deal. And if it's something, because I, I gave an opinion or I said something like, for instance, college football playoff, first rankings come out Tuesday, right? I, initially had a conversation with somebody and I was like, I'd put Texas A&M at four. How about that? Like, you're going to come at me for that opinion if you're an Ohio State fan. And I'm okay with that. But when you tie it into you're a female, you're blonde, you know, you're overweight, you're this, that's when it becomes an issue. Are these conversations that even we're having right now, it, it, like, is it cliche? Are they helpful? Are they important? 
I think they're important from a standpoint of bringing awareness to it. Does that make sense? Um, so yeah, I think they're important uh, from, from that standpoint. Now, I will say this too, being here in Nashville, and you guys know this city's amazing. The, the sports media in this city, the coaching staffs, the, um, you know, the Preds, the Titans, the, the universities here, every, a lot of that here in Nashville has been so great. And, and maybe we can just hug Teresa Walker for kind of, uh, you know, <laughs> opening that up for all of us and being a female covering sports in this town for so long. But, you know, I have never dealt with anything from that standpoint in this city. And I think Nashville's actual sports fans are really pretty good about accepting females in, in this business. And, and I will say that I don't feel like I have had a ton of hate or, um, you know, you're a girl, you don't belong here, that kind of thing. I haven't had a ton of that here in Nashville. And that speaks to this city and, and the people, the women who were here before me who kind of paved that, you know? Do you have any block mute policies? Like what's your, what's your Twitter block policy? I don't block anybody. That's my policy. Wow. I'm with, I'm with you. I've blocked one person in, in 12 years. Nope. The only, the, I think, I think I've blocked two people, but it was like naked woman profile. Like, uh, <laughs> you know, one of those, like one of those kind of inappropriate things that clearly was like a spam, whatever that's it. But, but other than that, I do not block anybody. I have discovered the mute function and, and <laughs> I, have made, I have made liberal use of it. Yeah. it, it See, I, I don't use the mute function either. I, now that I say that, the, watch. The, mute's, the mute's great because, because you, you, they can never screenshot the Don Davenport blocked me kind of thing and right. hold it up as a badge of honor. I mean, right. they, just, they just never know. They're just, they're just screaming into the void. It's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, see, that's a, that's a good call. I haven't used mute yet either. I might have to do that. I did start a uh, an interesting discussion on uh, Vanderbilt. And be, or uh, Let me say this. One of my tweets started an interesting discussion about Vanderbilt and, and Coach Derek Mason. All I said was his teams do not give up. He doesn't lose his teams. And that they get better week in and week out. Now, that's not me saying, oh my gosh, give Derek Mason a 10-year extension, right? But for some reason, that tweet has rubbed a lot of people a wrong way. So I might have to use the mute function on this thread <laughs> for the first time ever. We'll see. I'll let you know. I'll let you know how that goes. <laughs> Uh, obviously, Don, you went through a lot of changes uh, with 104.5 making a big lineup change here uh, recently. Sort of take us through what that experience was like for you. You're obviously still working with a lot of the same people, but you were going through a lot. You know, congratulations, by the way, on the new baby. Uh, so you. sort of take people through that whole process and what that was like. Yeah, it was it was crazy because I was actually on maternity leave during all of that. So, what, you know, when when. Well, you don't, but you know, because of your wife, when you're, <laughs> when you're on maternity <laughs> leave, there's no communication with your employer. It's, it's a legal thing. It is meant to protect moms who are on maternity leave. So there's no communication because I am, I am legally technically on maternity leave raising a baby. So the changes were made while I was on maternity leave. And when I came back, they had already been implemented. So I think it was a week before I came back, they were implemented. So, um, so it was kind of, and not to mention that was a crazy time. My, my daughter was two months old. So you're, you know, adjusting to 
first time mom, new mom life and all, and all of that. So yeah, when I came back, that is when I was just with Brent, no longer with Mickey. And then, you know, we had kind of gone through all the, all the changes. So it was definitely uh, different. Obviously I wasn't privy to any of that prior to it actually happening. I had no clue. And you know, it stinks. It stinks when good people in this business are not with you anymore and are not on your team anymore. Uh, and it's frustrating. And, you know, ever since I started radio, it, it, it's been me, Brent, Mickey. So that's all I knew, you know, when it came to radio was a three person show. So, you know, and, and a three person show with three very different personalities that, you know, I think go great together. So it's, you know, it stinks. And, um, and it is what it is. And unfortunately, it's a part of the business. As far as changes for me, obviously, with just a two person show, it's a lot more of you, you know, more of your voice, more of your, your opinions, more of, of all of that. So that's been a transition coming back to when you go from three voices to just two, there's a lot more of you, you got to get used to that. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing for some of our listeners. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> do you find do you find yourself approaching the show differently and kind of like how you have to prep for it because it because there I mean there is more of you in the show that three that three person dynamic can be really good and it can be a structure but it's also it also is very much of a limit of uh, on each of the personalities. What do you what do you have to do differently specifically in, in in a two person show every day? I think I probably have have dove a little deeper into research and preparation and all of that than maybe in the past, which and I've always been a big do your research and do your prep work kind of person anyway. Um, but you know, w when you have a three person show, I feel like you know, each one of you kind of has your strength and your expertise and what you maybe spend a little bit more time on from a, a research and prep standpoint. When it's just two, you kind of lose one of those, <laughs> one of those experts, so to speak. So, so from that standpoint, I think, yeah, probably I have, I've jumped in a little more when it comes to preparation and, and research and making sure that I know more about more, if that makes sense, you know, like, I, uh, like actually, I don't know, maybe paying a little more attention to, you know, MBA things like that, where as there used to be somebody there that would, would do that and you really didn't have to worry about it. <laughs> Yeah, I always found it harder to do to do a three person show. Really, uh, one, because one, of battling well, mics. Yeah, well, number one, I I talk a whole lot, so that that's one thing that I don't <laughs> yeah. have to worry about. But number two, it's there's just a it's a it's just a tougher dynamic. Like I to me, you can sit with someone and and have a conversation back and forth, and and sort of the the verbal cues, the knowing when to pick it up and run with it, knowing when to put it down. That was always so much easier when it's just two variables when it was a third variable for me, it didn't mean I didn't enjoy it. I enjoyed the challenge of it, but I thought it was more difficult because you're not all in real time and live radio. You don't always know exactly what the other person is thinking or what direction they may want to go with it. And I yeah. always found it a little bit more complicated to sort of work through the subject matter with three people than with just two, where, you know, we already knew exactly kind of where we wanted to go with something. If that, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that absolutely does. Well, and then put on top of this, COVID and working from home. Okay, yeah. And, you know, when we started, because before I went on maternity leave, it was all three of us and you're on a Zoom 
So you don't necessarily always have eye contact like you do when you're sitting next to each other in studio to kind of know who's going next, what direction they're going, or watching body language. Sometimes maybe you're looking away or the person that you're about to come at or something about something is looking away and doesn't see it coming. So that made it even more difficult. So yeah, I, I totally get what you're saying from a three-person show standpoint. I think, you know, I think you you kind of get into knowing each other really well so that helps but but it, it was even more challenging obviously covid wise when you're not allowed to be in the studio looking at each other don love talking with you thank you so much for joining us you've obviously had a, a fascinating career and uh looking forward to to keeping up with your work moving forward thank you for giving us a few minutes of your time we do appreciate it appreciate you guys thanks for doing this i think it's cool i think people enjoy it thank you Special thanks to Don Davenport for joining us here on Lamestream, Steve, and just a fascinating individual with lots of different career experiences. Certainly the sideline reporting one is uh, one of the most interesting situations currently, because even as we talked with her about Vanderbilt and Tennessee, the game has been canceled. <laughs> so uh, it just she's had a fun couple of weeks uh, working sidelines in college football. I was not expecting as much kind of uh, coach stories from her as we got, but uh, I, I did I did love the Mike Leach bit. That's perfect Leach right there. Yeah, in, in in a nutshell. Well, and and again, the TV thing, the morning thing, that early having to be on, transitioning to radio. I I, I will say this: I did think it was interesting, and you and I talked about this before we spoke with her from TV to radio, like the, the process is so difficult because, and vice versa in the other direction as well. I find it so difficult to go the other direction. We talked about this a little bit already. Um, I, I did find it interesting that part of her reasoning for wanting to transition to radio was not just, I want to get back into sports, but I want to have space to move. And I think that's a, that's a really undervalued difference um, between television and radio is understanding, you know, four hours versus four seconds. <laughs> very, I very different. I couldn't tell how much of the of the early morning stuff where she still has a little PTSD from getting up at 2 a.m. 2 every day. Yep. And I couldn't tell how much of that is like bargaining when she said, if, if the show just started at 5 a.m., I'd be okay. Would, would it really, would, would 3 a.m. be better than 2 a.m.? I mean, you did, mornings for, you did mornings for a long time. I mean, yours was what, six? you were 6 to 10? We, yeah, we were on at 6, so my alarm went off about 4 Four thirty, and I, I got, I condensed. Again, this is what I said when, when the interview with her, I had condensed the time between when my feet hit the floor out of the bed to getting in the truck had gotten down to like eight minutes. So, wow. so I had like breakfast packed the night. I was like, a, I was like a third grader. I had breakfast packed the night before. I had my clothes set out. I showered the night before. I, I wanted to get as much sleep as possible and then condense the the preparation process to as small amount of time as possible. And that's just not possible when you're on television. No. You just, you can't, you have to take the time to be prepared. And, and those folks have to be, I mean, you have to be bright eyed and bushy tailed when that, when that light comes on, because if you're not, it shows. And, and, and that audience, the audience is probably a little more forgiving, but not much more. I mean, they're still expecting everything from you at that, at that moment. So I'm, I'm kudos to her for lasting five years in that slide. We'll get, we'll get into ratings and recs here in, in just a second, but um, I, I do want to comment about the Clemson, Florida State thing. And I wanted to run, run one thing past you because it is sort of a media conversation. She's obviously talked a lot about it on this episode. Uh, it's more, I just think, I don't know what you think. I think the, cause Dabo Sweeney has, has come out and said a bunch of stuff about this, basically, you know, railing on Florida State for 
being scared essentially. And the tinfoil hat on top of his head keeps getting bigger. You know, Mike Norvell in Florida state, you heard Don talk about how stringent and how tough the protocols have been at Florida state since he tested positive and how good a job they've actually done. I don't know about you. I think the entire Clemson Florida state thing is just 2020 in one nutshell. It's one, I, mean, I think it's one Twitter debate and somebody probably should do this, go back and look at like a TikTok hour by hour of the week leading up to this and running through all the testing protocols. I mean, somebody would have to let them behind the scenes of both of those. But to me, that is the season in a nutshell. It's programs that are of differing quality testing wise. And I'm not saying Clemson's bad, but Florida state is very good. And kind of the risk that they're willing to put players through that to me is that to me is everything you and i could have lots of discussions from a sports standpoint from a you know political standpoint from an information and medical standpoint and a personal standpoint but just strictly from a media standpoint i really do believe that again the acc didn't come out and squash this with any good messaging from the top right right you have one league one team that says no we followed every rule but 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 we're and we're totally comfortable, even though there might be some major holes in those protocols. They followed all the protocols, and the other team is going. Well, we're not comfortable. I, I think it's bigger than just sports. I think it's bigger than just this week. I think it's bigger than it, it is a media-driven argument on social platforms between p- groups of people that feel differently about something that they really don't have all the information about. That is essentially all we've done in 2020 for the entire calendar year with each other. And I think this is a a, a nice encapsulation at the end of the the college football season there there are there is no sort of kind of like governing norms from the league so as a result everybody is everybody's in different places and and you know swinney feels feels absolutely free to take as many shots at florida states as possible that doesn't take the temperature down in this situation no and again i think you could draw a few parallels between that and what took place in this country writ large in 2020. I'm just saying. I'm just, just saying. Uh, thank you so much to Don Davenport for hanging out with us, of course. Um, just love talking with her. She's a fascinating individual. known her for a long time and uh, a really big fan of her work. So thanks to Don Davenport. Ratings and Rex. Steve, if you want to dive into this real quickly, let's uh, take a look. Again, Titans Ravens. Number one. Number one. Shocking. 25.3 rating. Just another big number there for the Titans in a win. Uh, a great game. Still not as high as I think the Steelers was the high watermark at 28. Packers and Colts, 14.7. Chiefs Raiders, which was a great game, 13.6. I, I sort of stayed up for that one. <laughs> Cardinals and Seahawks, 12.8. <laughs> and then Tennessee Auburn, a 9.4 sneaks in there. Interestingly, uh, a college football game got in there on an ES, on ESPN, but also that it wasn't it didn't even get to a 10. So only th- four sporting events over a 10 this week in terms of interest level in, in Nashville. You know, the ratings are off on on everything because there's been so much condensed into the fall. It'll be interesting a couple months from now, we'll be able to take kind of like this kind of longitudinal view of the ratings and see where audiences were in different pockets. You can sort of see some of that now, but I I, I think we talked about this before. There's sort of an enthusiasm gap, particularly around college uh, football. I'm, I'm not sure that people think that the season is real in the sense of, yeah, they're, they're committed and, you know, they would like they would be normally, you know, that Tennessee Auburn number you would expect to be maybe a little bigger, but you would also expect like the top college non Tennessee games to be up over in, into double digits. 
Right, you know, Ohio State games and Notre Dame games and things like that. Although the Clemson Notre Dame game did crack that top five when it when it was up there, and so and again, no CBS game of the week in the SEC. That's a factor as well. It was Nevada versus San Diego State. You know so how that, weird that was it? Effect. To flip on, you know, you you tune in, and I said this on Twitter. You tune in midday Saturday afternoon. It's the SEC on CBS. It's the it's the diamond of the CBS college football <laughs> sports schedule. What temple of football are they going to be? It's McKay Stadium in Reno. <laughs> hey, they did have some Brad, really, Brad and Gary. They had some really beautiful shots of the Sierra Nevada mountains. So it was, hey, look, it it's very, gorgeous out yeah. there. It's great. It that is not Auburn. <laughs> no, no, it, it it's not. So uh, again, we'll keep an eye on that as it continues to to roll along. But it, again, as, as this program d- d- gets past the NFL, that's when I think we're going to start seeing really interesting. Yep dynamics of what you know do the memphis grizzlies crack the top five nash you know when you start talking about the national predators and you know college basketball kentucky basketball maybe on a big game of the week on a saturday so we'll we'll keep an eye on that but for now it's probably just going to be titans and then nfl with a few college games mixed in as we've told you many times uh recommendations you want me to go first here steve Absolutely. So I want to recommend a website that ties into sports talk radio since we've had Don on and uh, I want to recommend Barrett sports Jason Barrett's a former program director. Uh, I don't have his resume in front of me, but he's a guy I've known a little bit uh, around the edges. And I, and I, part of the reason I wanted to bring this up is that we're recording this on Tuesday morning and the lead on his website right now, when you look at some of the, the big stories is women in sports radio should not be an anomaly. That is the headline on the story. and <laughs> Timely and so, enough. And so I thought that was timely enough. I think it's a really, you know, it's very inside baseball, very inside, you know, sports talk radio around the country. He just sort of covers the sports talk radio beat, a la well, Richard Deitch, and he does a really good job of it. So his site does something which is, which is really interesting and that not enough sites do when they're dedicated to a particular beat, which is I think he views it as mi- his mission to get as much on the record as possible. And so there's a, like a lot of there's like a lot of like short rating stories about different markets and, and and things like that. It's incredibly valuable from a consumer perspective if you're going back and and searching for for information about something to be able to find these these little kind of archived bits of of information. And it's something that I wish I wish more sites did, but the dedication to it here is is really impressive. Um, so that's my recommendation for people if you want to get deep in the weeds on sports talk radio around the country, not just in Nashville, BarrettSportsMedia.com. Awesome. So my recommendation this week, in order to be perfectly on brand, uh, one of us needs to recommend something from the Athletic. So, <laughs> all right. So there's a fantastic story that Jeff Reuter did last week, which is the story that I've been wanting somebody to write. And maybe this is wish fulfillment on my part and why why I'm recommending it, which is Mike Jacobs' approach at Nashville SC to to roster building. And this is why, so Reuter makes the argument that Jacob taking a money ball approach to building the Nashville SC roster. And if you look at what was on the field on Friday night, Nashville playing Miami in a playoff game, these are the two expansion franchises, and they had they, they were constructed completely differently. Now, it didn't help that the, the, the high-priced designated player, uh, Gonzalo Higuain, who's an Argentinian who's played in, you know, for Real Madrid, and he was just coming from Italy. You know, he's the highest played player in the league. He was not on the field because of COVID. I don't know that it would have made that much of a difference to that game. I don't think he was going to kind of stop those two early goals from coming in because of the way Nashville had built their team. And 
Jacob's approach was is perfect for this market because in as much as they have gone out and spent the money on designated players, they have not spent all of the money on it. And the, you know, there's there's not a there's not an Iguain, there's not a Beckham, there's not a Wayne Rooney on this roster, but the pieces that they have picked fit perfectly. And it's one of the reasons why I think Jacob is the leading candidate or one of the top two for MLS executive of the year. I, I think that, and this, this article makes just absolutely the case for that. He is an incredibly analytical guy. You used the phrase money ball already to describe him. And I do find what's interesting about soccer, because as I'm, as we're watching the Titans lose players left and right in the NFL, that's just a war of attrition. You cannot go out and solve problems throughout the course of the year. Really after the trade deadline, people off the street and the practice squad and the delivery truck are not going to save your season. But I think, in soccer, you can go do that. You can go address needs and slowly but surely finally tune what you've got and then build on it as you go throughout the course of the year because you can kind of you know, acquire talent whenever you want in soccer. It's kind of just a, a, a wild, wild west. And he, they built with a defensive core. His gem was to go out and get Walker Zimmerman early in the process. It's who he wanted. They weren't shopping him at LAFC. They went and got him anyway. And now he's turned into the highest price transfer and you know defender in MLS history. And slowly but surely they've built and built and built they've got healthier and now they put on a show on 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 friday night against miami mls is mls is really weird in terms of how teams are constructed because there's so many kind of byzantine rules due to the sort of the the single entity system uh, if you're not familiar technically nashville is an owner operator and the league controls all of the players it's i mean if you're a cynic, it's a way to get around antitrust and keep player salaries down. And, th- and that's certainly, I-, I think you can argue for the first years of the league, there were starters in the league that were making like 35,000 a year at one point, having to, having to work side jobs in order to just kind of fulfill their professional yeah. soccer career. There are these allocation pools and there are, you, you see teams trading money back and forth uh, about what they can spend on players and, and how much they can spend on transfers. It's not like in England where Liverpool says, oh, we're going to spend $100 million on the best defender at Ajax and just bring him in now. That's not how MLS works. And so navigating these rules is incredibly, is incredibly having someone who, who can do that is incredibly beneficial. Yeah. He had spent time in other MLS uh, sides, learning at the feet of some really good people, including in Kansas City. I, I just think if you're going to look at Nashville's success this year, you you can tell it through Mike Jacobs' lens, and, and this athletic story absolutely does that. Uh, what's the name of the, the author again? It's uh, Jeff Ruder. If you're, if you're a soccer fan in Nashville, that alone justifies the subscription for the month. So There you have it. So everybody out there, have a wonderful and safe and happy holiday. Do not put cranberry sauce on your cold turkey sandwich. That is offensive. Oh, no, 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 no. That is offensive no, to no, me. No, 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 no. No, we're in the cranberry outro, Steve. on everything. We're in the outro, Steve. You can't argue with me. can't argue with me. <laughs> <laughs> we're in the outro. Please follow me on Twitter. My name is Braden Gall, at Braden Gall, of course, on Twitter. My name is Steve Cavendish. You can find me at Scavendish on Twitter, putting cranberry sauce on everything. And rate, review, and smash the subscribe button. Have a wonderful weekend, everybody. This has been Lamestream Sports on the 440 Sports Network.